I'm Jorge Salazar with the Texas Advanced Computing Center. They say you can't judge a book by its cover, but the human immune system does just that when it comes to finding and attacking harmful microbes such as the coronavirus. It relies on being able to recognize foreign intruders and generate antibodies to destroy them. Unfortunately, the coronavirus uses a sugary coating of molecules called glycans to camouflage itself as harmless from the defending antibodies. Simulations on the National Science Foundation-funded Frontera supercomputer at the Texas Advanced Computing Center have revealed the atomic makeup of the coronavirus's sugary shield. What's more, simulation and modeling show that glycans also prime the coronavirus for infection. Scientists hope this basic research will add to the arsenal of knowledge needed to defeat the COVID-19 virus. On the line to talk about her science team's latest findings is Romy Amaro, a professor of chemistry and biochemistry at the University of California, San Diego. Dr. Amaro, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, no problem. Thanks, Jorge. What are the main results of your study that looked at the molecular shielding of the coronavirus? One of the sort of really prominent results, I think, that really jumps out from the work is really how covered the surface of the spike protein is with these sugar-like molecules or these glycans. They refer to the glycans as a shield, and it is believed to serve like a, as a protective layer from the human immune system, essentially, so that viruses can sort of go undetected when they're in humans. And you really see how effective that shield is because it covers, you can really see them really covering the major components of the viral spike protein. It's the most exposed bit and the one that's really responsible for the initial infection in the human cell. That really jumped out. The other thing is that you can see very clearly that in the open conformation, so the spike protein has to undergo sort of a large structural change or a, or a structural change. I mean, it undergoes a large structural change to actually get into the human cell. But even to make that initial connection, it has to basically pop one of its, what they call the receptor binding domain. So it's one of the sort of bits of that spike protein actually has to lift up. And you can see really clearly, and maybe you did, you know, also in the figures, you can see really clearly that when that receptor binding domain lifts up into the open conformation, it actually lifts the important bits of the protein up over the glycan shield. The shield is there in the closed conformation. The shield is there sort of protecting the spike structure. But then you can see very clearly how it is exposed when it goes into the up conformation. So it sort of gives a potential reason why it does have to undergo these conformational changes, because if it just stays in the down position, those glycans are basically going to block the binding from actually happening. And then the other thing that we sort of predict in our study is actually that when you start, we started looking very closely at the glycan conformations relative to the protein structure. And one thing that really jumped out at us is that in the open conformation, there are two glycans that basically sort of prop up the protein in that open conformation. That was really surprising to see and something that is sort of one of the more major results of our study. It sort of suggests that the role of glycans in this case is going beyond shielding to actually potentially having these chemical groups actually being involved in the actual structural dynamics of the spike protein. Could you speak a little bit more about the um, about these viral envelope glycoproteins? Um, what's an easy way to describe what they are? 
and why you um, decided to kind of focus on them in this study? It's easier to answer the second question first, I think. Um, the reason why we chose to study them is because, or study this, is because it's the main infection machinery of the virus. So the virus is basically, in some sense, it's very simple. It's basically like a sack of viral RNA that's sort of carried around in a membrane, so a membrane sack packed inside with what we call viral RNA. And then it has, on the outside of that sack, it has basically the only thing that the human body sees before it's infected is the spike protein, essentially. So the spike protein sort of decorates the surface of the virus. That's the main bit of the virus that actually performs the initial infection. And it's actually that this protein has to interact with other molecules on the human cell in order to gain entry. Like it basically makes in some sense sort of like a handshake. It has to make contact. So that's why we and so many others are really, you know, interested in the spike protein because it's really, again, sort of like the main element of the virus that is involved in that initial infection. Could you describe the methods of your study, how you put this experiment together and how simulations work together with other data from the lab, the structural and biological data? So basically what we do is we're using computational modeling and simulation to build data-centric models of the SARS-CoV-2 virus and then try to basically use those simulations to explore different scientific questions around the virus. So what we do is we start with various bits of experimental data. So, you know, something that's very important to us is sort of knowing the structure of the system that we're interested. So we started with the cryo-EM data of the spike protein. And there's actually a number of studies now that have presented different cryo-EM data sets of the spike protein. We initially started with structures from Jason McClellan at the University of Texas and then also with the structures from the lab of David Wiesler at the University of Washington. So we took their structures, and those structures are really amazing because they basically give us, they give researchers a picture of what these important molecular machines actually look like. But the thing is that they can't necessarily see everything about the structure. Things that they have trouble seeing, they have trouble seeing the bits that move a lot, Okay, and it's in some sense similar to like if you're trying to take, I mean, it's, it's different because it uses different methods, but it's, it's similar to if you're trying to take a picture of a tree, for example, on a very windy day. You know, you would be able to see, you know, if you were taking a photograph of that, you would be able to definitely see the trunk of the tree and you'd be able to see branches. And the bigger the branches are, the more you would see. But the smaller branches, particularly towards the edge of the tree, you know, if it was a very windy day, you might not get a very clear picture of what that particular branch looked like. And so there's data that is there in the microscope, but they just can't see it because of the sort of the limits of the experiment. And so what we do with computers is we take the data that the beautiful and wonderful and important data that they give us, but then we can sort of use methods to build in those missing bits of information. And sometimes the way we do that is actually, in many cases, what we do is we actually use different experimental techniques and different data sets 
to build in that information. So, for example, you know, we've got the spike structure head from the cryo-EM data, but then some of the loops and the other bits of the structure we actually took from what is known from X-ray crystallography, where they can get very high resolution pictures, but of smaller components of the spike. And then further, what we did is the other thing that they have a lot of difficulty seeing in all these kinds of experiments is are the glycans. And again, people are really interested in the glycans because they do serve as a protective sort of coating on the surface of this protein that's really important for infection. And what people really want to know, for example, vaccine developers and drug developers, what, what we're really interested in is understanding what are the vulnerabilities that are present in this shield. You know, otherwise this shield is basically really protecting the protein from being either recognized by the immune system or being sort of like the function being sort of blocked by small molecule drugs. What we can do is basically use these computational simulations to create one cohesive picture of what this molecule actually looks like, including all of the glycans, which we know what should be at each of the positions in terms of these different sugar molecules. But when they take those pictures, those cryo-EM pictures and the X-ray crystallography pictures, because glycans are really flexible, they can't actually resolve their structural detail to the atomic level, which is what we need to know in order to design molecules like vaccines or like small molecule drugs that could actually bind to the spike protein and, you know, be effective therapeutically. Those relatively small movements on this large um, system, um, those are the movements that prime the host for infection. They make all the difference, don't they? They do. And the reason why places like TAC are so important and computers like TAC is number one, we cannot get an understanding of what these glycans look like if we don't use simulation. Right now, today, there is just frankly, there is no way to really see it experimentally. So we have to use, in this case, this is a case where simulation has the ability to really complement the experiments and to take us a little bit beyond where the experiments can go. You know, yes, they're predictions, but they can be really informative predictions if the data and the modeling is good. And so the other thing is that, you know, we can have these static pictures of what the infection machine looks like. But very similar to like if you're in a factory and, you know, if, if you've ever had the chance to go into a factory and actually see on a line, you know, them making some particular product, you know, at each of these different steps, there's some big machine there, you know, that has moving parts. And it's, these molecular machines in the virus are really no different than that. They are complicated machines that move. They're just really tiny machines, and it's very difficult for us to see their movements. But they, it's like that movement is really critical to the function you know, of these proteins. And so simulations like the ones that we've carried out on Frontera, they give us a first view into what the motions actually look like. And this is so important for understanding how these machines work, because otherwise we can't see it yet. We can't, we can't see it at the level that we need to in order to really understand what's going on. And then the other point I need to make is with respect to the glycans, there's two aspects to it that are, I think, important for simulation. Number one is using simulation to create data-centric models that 
take us beyond where any one single experiment can go. Because we take all this different data from different techniques and we bring it into one picture. That is, in itself is valuable for understanding sort of like the complexity of the situation, but like with a level of detail that can't otherwise be gained using just one technique alone. For example, with the glycans, you know, we can build in what they look like statically. But again, one of the things that's so important is these glycans, these sugar residues, this shield that these proteins use, uh, that these viruses use to evade the immune system, they are super mobile. They're very dynamic and they're very flexible. So it is critical to the understanding of how these things work that we understand how they move. And so that's, again, where simulation is really one of the only techniques that can be used to understand their movement and then to use that information to understand, okay, well, what parts of the structure are actually exposed? I mean, another way to think about it is, again, sort of the cryo-EM data gives us this picture, but that picture is incomplete. And if you just use that picture, you have, it's like, it's too simple of a, an idea of as complicated as it is. And by the way, it's pretty complicated. It's still too simplified to be really useful for people because we have to understand again, what is really going on? What really does this system look like so that we can design antibodies that will bind to open areas and not areas that are covered or otherwise excluded by glycans? If you could speak to um, to your work on Frontera at TAC and, and how it helped overcome some of these challenges of simulating the full-length SARS-CoV-2 spike glycoprotein that's embedded in this viral membrane. And I think that the system is 1.7 million atoms. Yeah, it's a pretty big system. It has 1.7 million atoms when you include all the sugars and all the water molecules and all of the membrane. And that's pretty big. It requires, in order to animate the dynamics it takes a lot of compute power. And that's really where Frontera has been fantastic because we need to sample relatively long dynamics to understand how this protein is actually working. So we're talking about microsecond or millisecond timescales. And in order to do that, we need so much compute. And really Frontera has been fantastic for us. So we have to basically take a pretty big chunk of the computer to run these trajectories and to understand what's happening with the system. And we've been able to do that, you know, with Frontera and this HPC consortium for COVID. So we're trying to share our data with as many people as we can, because people don't, they're not just interested in having the structure. What they really want are these trajectories. They want the dynamical understanding of what's happening. And so we're trying to share that data now as broadly as possible, not only with other academic groups, but also with different groups of industry and so forth who are doing uh, neutralizing antibody development. You know, generally speaking, I think the world is holding its breath, you know, waiting for scientists to develop a vaccine and therapeutics for COVID-19. Uh, would you comment about the role of pure research, like what you're doing and others are doing too around the world, the role of pure research in defeating the COVID-19 virus? It's so important that we understand sort of the fundamentals of how the virus works. And it's sort of like, in some sense, we're at war with the virus. And in order for us to develop the best strategies to defeat our foe, in this case, SARS-CoV-2, we're going to have a much better chance of doing that if we understand how this enemy actually works. 
And the more we know about it, the more vulnerabilities we're going to be able to go after and to potentially take out. There's multiple ways that we can defeat this particular foe. And again, the more that we know, which is going and where this information is really coming from, you know, what essentially would be viewed as sort of basic science. It's going to better prepare us to win this war, to win this fight. And whether that's vaccines or small molecule drugs, whether it's under, better understanding transmission, all of these things are part of the landscape of the fight. You know, and even going to understanding, you know, like there's like how, why we have such vastly different responses. You know, some people will be asymptomatic. Other people will have really severe responses to the virus. Getting at the questions of why is that and how can we use this type of information to better treat people, to better develop the response, it's of such great importance that we learn as much as we can. And then hopefully we can translate those understandings to things that will be useful, you know, either in the clinic or you know, in the streets, for example, you know, if we're trying to reduce transmission, like, for example, with what we know now about aerosols and wearing masks and you know, all these things will be part of it. But, yeah, basic research has a huge role to play. And um, I'm happy to be a part of it. And I think, you know, tech there, Tech Frontier is really, it's a strength that we have it in our set of weapons. You've been listening to Romeo Morrow of UC San Diego. For the Texas Advanced Computing Center, I'm Jorge Salazar.